Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silken at in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? David, I am great. Thank you very much. It's a beautiful fall day here, or autumn, depending on, you, on which side of the Atlantic you live on. And I just want to say that the autumn slash fall is the best season of the year, and I will fight anyone who wants to. to, to this is the hill I will die on. I don't know how you feel about this, but I'm, I'm, so, I'm so a great I'm fan of autumn animals. as well, and I don't want to get into a fight. So that's right. uh, so, so we're in agreement on I mean, this. Yes, yes, of course. Right. Well, and thanks for listening, everybody. everybody that's it. That's this week's episode. Good. <laughs> Agree on one thing. So the question, I, the, the question I have for you, Frank, is your pantry fully stocked? Because if it's not, you may have a problem. Uh, well, it depends on what you mean. You stocked stocked with, with what? Exactly. <laughs> the reason why I ask is because there have been in the past two years, mostly because of the pandemic, but not just because of the pandemic, supply shortages of all kinds of things. Like we all remember the to- great toilet paper shortage of, of 2020. Uh, but you know, since then, there have been shortages in computer chips and, and many other products, and there's a huge uh Traffic jam right now outside of the, the port of Los Angeles and Long Beach, uh, where, where hundreds of cargo ships are, are waiting to unload their cargo. So we're talking about supply chains today, which is not a term that I think many people had thought about until about two years ago when it's been in the news almost every day and try to sort of historicize what a supply chain is and how that has been in uh, a factor in American history. Yeah, and locally we've got some issues relating to, well, it's some of the same factors that are affecting things in the U.S., but we've also got uh, some of the issues arising from Brexit, uh, so a shortage of heavy goods vehicle drivers and things like this. And, and so, yeah, we're, we are experiencing shortages here in the U.K., and, and uh, there are shortages basically around the world, aren't there? Yeah, and, and you know, the supply chain, it, it, it's it's... You only notice it when it breaks, right? So, so, so you only notice these kinds of absences when you go and you want to buy toilet paper and there's no toilet paper, or you want to buy fruits and vegetables and it's not there. Those are the times when people pay attention to it. Otherwise, it, it these kinds of systems are often largely invisible. Well, Ed, yes, that's right. Although one, th- I think it's been exacerbated in the past eighteen months, David, because of COVID. Um, both because we've had notable shortages, so there mm. were the fights over toilet paper and things like that at the beginning, but also we got so used to ordering things online during the various lockdowns and everything, and one of the things that seemed to work well for a long time during the during at least the early stages of the pandemic was the supply chain. Mm. You like. I can't believe I can order this and it'll be here tomorrow. And, and, and uh, you know, from certain big online retailers, which we will uh, discuss in the context of the next few minutes, in the course of the next few minutes, excuse me. Uh, and, and so for a while, it seemed, I don't know, if we, if we tried to do this episode a year ago, we might have said, actually, despite that original, you know, shock mm. to the system when people were fighting over supplies when we first locked down, the supply chains have worked pretty well. Now, a year on, it doesn't quite look the same, does it? No. Uh, for, for complicated reasons, and we'll probably get into that. But I mean, I think the, the global supply chain as it is right now is one of these sort of modern marvels that prior to the pandemic, I think a lot of people just took for granted that you could go to a shop and it would have the things you wanted when you wanted them at a price that was reasonable, you know, and you could get fruits and vegetables in North Dakota in January, you know, and that wasn't a surprise to people and just the sort of the... the complexity of all these systems um, because they're largely invisible you know they only become apparent when they when they fall apart um, so I'm going to sort of define here a supply chain yeah I'm please gonna, I'm gonna steal a, a dic- dictionary definition so I should say we always tell students not to begin their essays this way with a dictionary definition but I think but, for the purposes but, of this yes, we should yes because <laughs> because it's a term I mean it's a term of, of business that has become in the headlines a lot recently, but it's not a term I think many of us would have used until about two years ago. Uh, so, you know, the business uh, textbook uh, definition would be a system of organizations, people, activities, information, and resources involved in supplying a product or service to a consumer. Um, okay. Another definition, and this is sort of more folksy, having the right item at the right quantity, at the right price, at the right place, for the right price, at the right time, in the right condition, to the right consumer. So it's about getting stuff to people or services to people and all the systems that go into making that happen. 
That might be a folksy definition. Wright is doing a lot of work right in there. That, exactly. <laughs> in that definition. Well, so let's, let's, let's sort of unpack what this would have looked like. Are there any supply chains in the colonial era that you could talk about? What did they look like? Oh, sure. Uh, I mean, w one thing we we know about, and now we're talking about British North America yes. in, in the main and the Caribbean, but what we know about those, those colonies during the 17th, but particularly the 18th century, is that they were producers of staple goods, mainly agricultural products, be they... Uh, tobacco or wheat or in the case of the Caribbean sugar which was sent back to the metropole that is Britain um, for circulation either sail in Europe or elsewhere in, in Britain's empire in exchange for again this is the kind of textbook version of this in exchange for manufactured goods which were mainly manufactured um, here in Britain or elsewhere in Europe and sent to the colonies there's a crucial missing factor here, and I um, we talked about this a little bit before we came on the air, which of course is labor, and the much of the labor which produced those staple goods from the colonies, of course, was enslaved or unfree labor, either enslaved labor from Africa or indentured servants from from Europe, but in terms of the enslaved uh, labor, you know, uh, people who went to school at a certain uh, a certain time in the, in the United States would have learned about the triangle trade mm. between, and the triangle trade basically sums up the trade between uh, Europe, again in this context mainly Britain, West Africa, and North America and the Caribbean. And so what we saw, we you know, the kind of I I certainly had this image in my textbook, mm. David. I'm sure you probably sure, sure, did yeah. as well. Um, so you have kind of. A map of the North Atlantic with the uh, these three regions uh, identified and sort of uh, different points of trade with it between them. The simplistic version of this, which we now know is more complicated, was that uh, the uh, Europeans were sending manufactured goods to West Africa, um, which they traded for, and particularly guns, alcohol, and other things, which they traded for enslaved people, or they or they purchased people. Um, whom they then took to the New World to sell. Uh, idea, the, the kind of textbook version of this is almost as a one ship is doing, doing all of this. Things, of course, yeah. that wasn't the way it worked. But the image would be a ship takes manufactured goods from Britain to West Africa. It then takes enslaved people from West Africa to the Caribbean or mainland North America where those people were, were sold into slavery. And then those that survived uh, were sold into slavery. And then that ship, that kind of single ship mm. would fill up with tobacco or wheat or rice and, and go back to uh, Europe. Of course it wasn't that simple. And we know that the arrows around this um, these triangles, I'm gesturing wildly. Yes, which is very effective in a podcast. <laughs> uh, the arrows actually go in multiple directions in this. So you have this this network of trade that made um, that that could be seen as a supply chain. We don't mm. normally, I mean, I'm in the context of this discussion, um, I'm glad you suggested that before we leave. We don't necessarily think of that as a supply chain in the same way. It's a horrible supply mm. chain because it involves, obviously, people being enslaved uh, and people dying as a result of that. But but it's in terms of the movement of goods um, around mm. over long distances and providing customers with what they want. It's a crude but effective, really important economic engine in the colonial period. And there's a Sorry to go on, David, but there's a crucial corollary to this because um, it extends to the interior, certainly of the North American continent, because gift giving and trading, again, particularly of manufactured goods, which have come from Europe or from, in some cases, the coastal colonies, uh, to the interior with indigenous peoples, an important element of both uh, of diplomacy and statecraft, but it also is fosters economic relationships. And so what we have are, you know, manufactured goods from, I don't know, um, you know, crockery from Darby being traded in what's today Ohio uh, in the middle of the 18th century. Perhaps more directly uh, in terms of if we think of, okay, a man, I'm holding a mug right here, you know, getting this mug to somebody in America in the 18th century. We also see... Um, consumer trading and consumer goods are really, really important. Uh, they're an important feature of life. If you think about some of the, if you think about John Singleton Copley's portraits, right? He paints portraits of prominent uh, Americans in the 1770s, uh, 60s and 70s. Uh, they're often merchants or lawyers or so. Well, they're often 
pictured wearing nice clothes, most of which were probably manufactured in Europe. They're holding stuff, you know, they, you know the, these portraits are expressions of who they are in terms, as consumers. And those consumers are at the end of a supply chain. So Jefferson and Washington, two guys I know a little bit about, you know, they are avid shoppers. Mm. Um, you know, Washington carries on all kinds of correspondence with his factors in, in London, the people who sell his tobacco. So he's sending them tobacco. But when he sends his annual tobacco, make, makes his annual tobacco shipment, he also sends lengthy, lengthy lists and orders of what he wants. But the problem he's got is he doesn't know what's in style necessarily. So he says, you know, okay, here are my measurements. Uh, you know, send me a suit in the latest style. And he's trusting them to do this. Of course, the next ship might not come back for another three months or six mm. months. And then he says, oh, this isn't very nice or it's not, it doesn't fit properly. Or they they always send us the bad stuff because it's out of style. Uh, but these people are massive consumers and beneficiaries of a supply chain. And, of course, the supply chain becomes politicized during the uh, so-called imperial crisis, uh, the dispute between the colonies and Britain leading up to the revolution, because, of course, the colonists or some of the colonists um, adopt commercial boycotts to try to exercise some, some pressure on Parliament. And these are quite effective. There's a, there's a very... Uh, I was thinking about this this morning when I was coming, coming in. Um, there's an interesting moment when, when Jefferson is courting his wife, Martha Wales Skelton, who was a very wealthy widow, and they loved music, and he buys a pianoforte, or he orders one, but it's during the boycott. And so he writes to, and he sort of alerts people locally because he's a supporter of the boycott, doesn't want the Sons of Liberty to tar and feather him or anything. So he, get, he orders this pianoforte because he wants to give it to his wife as a wedding present, or his would-be wife as a, as a wedding present. Uh, but he doesn't want to violate the boycott, so it's meant to be put in storage when it arrives, so he can't have it. So it's a bit like, okay, you order something from Amazon, but you get it delivered On to layaway. the Amazon, you know, the, the depot, yeah, yeah. The depot, and you leave it there because you can't, it's politically unacceptable to pick it up and get it. And so you're, he's waiting for the right moment politically to collect this pianoforte. Uh, so, so, yeah, there are supply chains. Sorry, long-winded answer, David. There are supply mm. chains in the 18th, 18th century. century. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that, that just your description of a, you know, reminds me about is how inefficient some of these supply chains are. Oh, totally. Right? Like one of the stories is about how these systems become more efficient. So, you know, when, when George Washington is, is stockpiling his tobacco, you know, he's got to wait for the ship to come up the river to load the tobacco. And then he, you know, that takes time and, and, and cost. And so there, there's that, that he has an infinite information deficit he doesn't know how much the tobacco, you know, if information is part of what a supply chain is, he has no idea how much money he's going to make on that tobacco when it gets to London. Is it going to be, you know, a glut of tobacco? Is there going to be, a, is, is smoking going to be out of style in London? And all of a sudden, you know, what's going to happen? You know, and he doesn't know what's available to buy. And so there's this, uh, you know, disorientation. There, there's sort of a as a supply chain goes, it exists, but it's not a good one. It doesn't It's not a very efficient system. Uh, well, it's a good one for the 18th century, century but, but, sure. but, but you're right. They're always dealing with um, limited and out-of-date information. Mm. And if we've learned one thing, and I think this will come out in the course of our conversation, mm. the key to supply chains becoming efficient is access to better information, right? Right. And, and, and you know, contrary winds, you're screwed. You know, exactly. <laughs> you know, right. if you're stuck in the doldrums, and that's why they're 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 stuck when it comes to whether it's knowing the price of tobacco or what the latest fashions actually are. Mm -hmm. And so they buy lots of stuff, and they do their best, and they put these orders. And, and and again, these elite men and women are very very keen consumers, so they they know what they want, but what they want is usually a year or two out of date they, because mm -hmm. because. They read old newspapers and old magazines and things like that. Yes. And to some extent, it doesn't matter. But uh, because what's out of date in London might not be out of date in Williamsburg. To be sure. Um, but, but yeah, in terms of thinking about information. And the, the one other thing I would say, David, about, about the colonial American supply chain before we move into your period mm. is there are there is domestic manufacturing in the colonies as well. That is to say... Uh, well, there, it's domestic in the sense that it often happens in the home, and that labor is often supplied by, by women, but it's also domestic, when I mean in the colonies that will become the United States. Uh, and there's a kind of 
debate about whether these these colonies, soon to be states, need to develop their own manufacturing capability to to, and the the political controversy. Um, uh, brings that to the fore, really, because wearing homespun in the 1760s becomes a political statement. It, it is, to use the vernacular, a uh, contemporary vernacular, it becomes politically correct to wear homespun. You're making a political statement if you're wearing homespun clothes. But somebody has to actually do the home spinning right. to produce homespun <laughs> clothing. And Washington famously, when he's inaugurated as president in 1789, wears a brown suit that was manufactured in Connecticut. I mm. think it was Hartford. Uh, you know, and he's making a statement about, you know, basically as a version of Buy American. But the point is, these issues about supply and productivity um, uh, are there. But I think you put your finger on something. It, it's about information and efficiency as much as it is about producing stuff. And I think there's an increase in information and efficiency in your century. I think that's fair uh, yes, to say. Yes, I think that's so, a, so, a fair So, so, so well, let me throw so, things over to you, so, Dr. 19th century. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lousy nickname. Um, <laughs> if you were a Marvel villain, that would be like the lamest Marvel villain. There's some pretty lame Marvel <laughs> villains we can talk about. Uh, that's maybe a different podcast. Uh, so, you know, thinking about the, the, the change that happens in the 19th century, and the 19th century is a phenomenal change in, in this, uh, in, in terms of creating supply chains, understanding how they work and how these sort of efficiencies work. I'm going to steal an example uh, from William Cronin's book, Nature's Metropolis, which is a great book, amazing book. I'm going to sort of oversimplify this somewhat, but you'll, you'll get the big picture and you can read the book for the details. You know, if you imagine a, a farmer in the American Midwest in the 1820s, 1830s, if he wanted to get his grain to market, his wheat that he had grown to market, how would he go about doing that and how would he know where to sell it? Well, he would harvest the grain, load it into sacks, put it on a wagon, take it to the nearest river, put it on a barge, maybe one that he built, a raft, float it to, down to the Mississippi, to wherever the nearest city is, often to New Orleans, not knowing whether there's any demand for wheat in New Orleans, not knowing what kind of price he's going to get for wheat in New Orleans, not knowing when he gets there who the right person to sell it to is, and then after he's found some place to sell his wheat, maybe at a good profit, maybe not at a good profit, he then has to get home. And how does he do that? Well, if it's like 1820, odds are he's walking home because there's not a way to get up the river easily. People do this, but it's not a great system and it doesn't, you know, it's not very efficient. The grain merchant in New Orleans also doesn't know what to do with the wheat. He doesn't know whether to sell it locally and make it into bread for people in New Orleans. He doesn't know whether to ship it to New York or to London. You know, there's huge inefficiencies in the market there. Um, now, you could potentially get your grain to New Orleans, and there could be a grain shortage in New Orleans, in which case you could make a killing. So there's a potential for huge profit, but there's also all these sort of leakages. And there's a huge amount of labor involved, right? There's a huge amount of labor and expense and time invested in putting this grain into sacks, putting it on a wagon, putting it on a barge, going down the river, finding someone to sell it to. There's, there's all this kind of work that goes in. Your thoughts? I guess one, one observation I want to make is, is that uh, geography is incredibly important in this. So, right. so, so the reason they have to go to New Orleans, mm. the reason the farmer from Ohio has to go to New Orleans uh, to sell his grain in New York is because the Appalachian Mountains are in the way, <laughs> right, right. and you've got to go the way, you know, it's a waterborne system, and so, so they're incredibly dependent on geography. That's the reason for the Louisiana Purchase, of course. The, the, the original goal was to purchase New Orleans. It was They didn't want the Louisiana Territory. They wanted access to the mouth of the Mississippi River. To be sure. Um, now, what happens over the course of the 19th century? Well, a bunch of things happen. There's all technological changes that make his life different. There's the McCormick Reaper. There's the steamboat. There are railroads, all of which makes harvesting the grain easier, shipping the grain to where you want it to be easier. But there's also knowledge transformations. There are things like the telegraph and eventually the, the, the telephone that allows markets to become more rational in the economic phrasing of the term. That is to say, you get to know, do I sell my grain in Chicago or do I sell it in New Orleans? Where am I going to get the best price? How are those prices going to sort of reach equilibrium? Do I sell it in September or do I sell it in October? When is the best time for that to happen? We also have the, the sort of rise of 
grain as a commodity. You have this idea that your grain as a farmer may be interchangeable with the grain of another farmer's grain. Um, whereas instead of you selling your grain to some distributor in New Orleans, you could sell your grain to a grain elevator operator who would then mix your grain with other people's grain and sort it by different grades of grain, depending on how good the grain is. And then people could buy and trade that as a commodity of things like the Chicago Board of Trade established in 1857 that allows for things like futures contracts on grains. And so grains, there becomes a level of abstraction for the entire industry. So it goes from being a very hands-on... This is my flat boat full of grain. grain. This is my, <laughs> my flat boat full of my grain that I grew to, you know, these flows of commerce where somebody who wants to buy grain doesn't have to worry about which particular farmer they're getting it from. Uh, that, that, that there's systems embedded that become technologically created, created in terms of the information economy and in terms of this kind of commoditization that allows for a national grain network. Um, but your farmer who's selling grain, David, and Cronin does a really good job, mm. you're correct, of, of describing that, that transformation. He's not running a charity, right? He wants to no. make profit, and he wants to take that profit and buy stuff he either needs or wants. So how, how, how's the rest of the, the supply chain work for him? Well, on the, in the long term, it doesn't actually work out very well for him because the profits on grain get lower and lower and lower. Um, on the other hand, he's got a sort of stable situation for who he's going to sell his grain to. Uh, so there's a stability, in the, relative stability in the market. Uh, that there wasn't early on. Um, um, so, but, you know, so the overall system doesn't actually work to his advantage, even if it seems to be much more efficient for him uh, in the short term. I don't know. That, at least that's my sort of reading of it. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, the people who end up making the huge profits on it tend to be the merchants on the Chicago Board of Trade. Much sure, sure, so. sure. But I, 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 I get that. You're right. Mm -hmm. We, you know, we know the agricultural unrest in America, especially in the 1880s and 90s, is, is quite profound. So, uh, it, it's not that that I'm interested in so much. Is you know, how does he buy clothes for himself or a hat for his wife or or whatever? Your, your farmer, you, you know, he supply chains work both ways, both right? Ways, well, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, you do have the commodities tend to, I think, pre predate the com that side of, of, of supply chains tends to usually predate the com consumer half of it. Right. And I think you see that actually happening in, in China right now, where China is has been largely exporting things and now they're sometimes importing things and that, that, that mix of, of, of are you a producing economy or are you a consuming economy. Um, you know, one of the manifestations in the late 19th century of a consumer economy, the rise of that in the United States, uh, is the Sears catalog, which is an interesting sort of thinking about the uh, supply chain. The Sears catalog was an enormous, it was like, you know, people compared it to the Bible sometimes, an enormous tome of products that one could buy and have shipped to wherever it is you were in the United States, usually by the U.S. mail. Uh, and it starts in the... Sears as a company starts in the 1880s. By the 1890s, they got this enormous 300 plus page catalog. They describe it as the, the cheapest supply house on earth, the book of bargains. And they've got all kinds of things. They've got farm equipment, they've got clothing, they've got furniture, you can get guns, you've got sporting equipment, you know, you know, they've got it. Eventually, by 1908, you could buy a kit for a house in the Sears catalog. And eventually they end up with something like 400 different model houses you could pick from in the Sears catalog, depending on what kind of price point you want. And they would ship you the kit with all the pieces you need to put together your home, like a big sort of Lincoln log set. Um, you could also buy Lincoln logs there. Uh, so, Well, yeah, you could buy <laughs> toys. I mean, do you remember the Sears catalog, David? Because I do. Vaguely. I think it was mostly on its way out. I mean, so the Sears eventually got stores and yeah, it's a chain of stores but the, stores, the stores right? don't really start until the 1920s um the 
catalog predates the the stores as a, as a phenomenon uh and so you know by the time that i was doing much shopping uh, the catalog was was mostly dead and the uh, stores were on their way to being dead because, yeah i mean the stores are no more uh but but uh when i was a kid we got the sears catalog and it was massive i mean mm. it was absolutely massive and i remember kind of pouring over it you know, especially around Christmas, you know, when you're looking for toys and things like that. And so, and it was, uh, I don't remember us ordering much from it. I mean, it was more an advertise, it was more a vehicle to advertise what was in the stores. Mm. And we had a, you know, a Sears in the local mall uh, or whatever. But the Sears catalog was a, was a big deal for, a, you know, a big part of my childhood. Oh, yeah. uh, and, and when did the Sears catalog cease publication? Do you know? Uh, 1993. Right. Okay. That's when they closed their catalog division. Two years before Amazon opened. Which is interesting, because to some extent, the closest analog to the Sears catalog is the Amazon front page, isn't it? No, I think it is, right. You know, and, and you know, the idea, that, though, that, that you could be anywhere in the United States and have, and, and order things in a catalog and have it come to you, um, you know, I think that the similarity between that and ordering something on Amazon and expecting it to show up the next day now, Sears stuff didn't show up the next day. It showed up the next week or a couple of weeks or the next month, depending on what it was and where you lived. Uh, but it's a similar kind of model of, of thinking about how supply chains are. Well, and, and, and think of, okay, let's think about that, though, because if, if we go back to our, you know, so George Washington was, if not the wealthiest man in America, one of the wealthiest men in America. He's buying a lottery ticket when he orders stuff. He's mm. saying, okay, send me a suit. And he hopes for the best. Or I need shoes, and he hopes he doesn't get two left shoes or whatever. You know, um, a century later, a little more than a century mm. later, common people can order stuff from a catalog and get it much more quickly. Yeah, not as you know, um, not as quickly as we can, <laughs> even with sure. our even with our supply disruptions. Um, so, so if we're just measuring the kind of pace of change, that that, that that's a good way to kind of. Yeah. Illustrated, I suppose. Now, I mean, one of the things that's different between what you buy on Amazon and what you buy in the Sears catalog is that most of the material in the Sears catalog was manufactured in the United States. Right. And so it was about, you know, one of the things that you see, especially in the 19th century, is, is the development of a, a sort of an internal market for American goods and a national market for American goods, a sort of uh, ability for, obviously, there are international markets, but when you buy things on Amazon, you know, much of it is not domestically manufactured, whether you buy it here or yeah. buy it in the United States. I would probably say most of it is. I don't know for sure, but I think that's a safe guess. Yes, right. <laughs> it depends on what, what kinds of stuff you're buying on Amazon. Um, so I think that sort of speaks to sort of different kinds of, of, of supply chains. But, but, but the if one way to measure this, and I, I think that was a really helpful observation you made a few minutes ago, if one way to measure this is it's about uh, access to information and the, the um, more efficient access to, to better information more quickly, mm. then the success of that allows for a global system. So yes. what we see, you know, so, so uh, to, to some extent, Amazon selling you stuff made in China is the culmination of what starts with the Sears catalog. Oh, to be sure. I think those are, those. that's a, yes, that's definitely the case. I mean, one of the things that's going on that I think enables things like the Sears catalog to work, you know, is you do have the development of, of national systems in the United States in the 19th century um, in a sort of decades immediately prior to the launch of the Sears catalog that allows a corporation based in Chicago to ship things nationwide. You know, one of them is the development of a standard railroad gauge. Oh, tell me more. Frank is excited about railroad gauge. So, for those of you who don't know what a railroad gauge is, the railroad gauge is the distance between the rails on the railroad, railroad gauge, right? And when railroads were introduced to the United States in the early part of, of the 19th century, the railroad every railroad had its own gauge, you know, and some of them were two feet wide, and some of them were six feet wide, and everything in between. Which is fine if if railroads are just going between point A and point B. 
But once railroads start to connect to one another and try to ship goods longer distances, those differences in railroad gauges causes real problems because you then have to take everything off of one train, pick it up, schlep it across town to the other station and put it on a different train. There's a huge labor cost involved, a huge sort of time involved, difficulties involved as a consequence of this. Uh, you start to find some standardization of railroad gauges during the Civil War. Uh, part of this has to do with uh, the Pacific Railroad Act from 1863, where they say there's going to be a standard gauge, and the standard gauge is four feet, eight and a half inches, um, which then widely becomes adopted, mostly in the North. Uh, the South, for various reasons, has its own railroad gauge. Um, for the next few decades in the 19th century. Uh, the standard railroad gauge in the South was five feet, which meant you had huge problems if you wanted to ship a good from Chicago to New Orleans, because at some point you're gonna have to go from the Northern Railway System to the Southern Railway System, unload all the stuff and put it on a new train with different, um, on a different set of tracks, you know, with a different, different gauge. Yeah, I mean, so so standardizing the gauges. I remember this when I was a kid. You'd see I'd, in New England, mm. like you'd see a train, and there'd be a kind of like a, a, a freight train, and there'd be a kind of random cars that be like Southern Pacific. You think, why is there a Southern Pacific car here on, you know, rolling through Massachusetts? The reason being it, that car would have been moved. moved. Yeah, and, and and we'll get to even yeah. uh, an order of magnitudes more than that, and we'll get to the fifties and sixties. They decided, the Southern Railroad leaders decided that, that they needed to switch to the national gauge, but they figured out, well, how exactly do we go about doing that? This is a remarkable story. In 1886, in the course of 36 hours, employing tens of thousands of people, they moved the Western Rail line of, of the two, you, know, you only have to move one of them, moved it three inches inward. Uh, so it all met the standard gauge and fixed all the trains so that all the trains were three inches narrower. Uh, and they did this in 36 hours, 11,000 miles of track and lots and lots of rolling stock. Um, How many people were involved in that? I mean, of course, the railroad industry was probably the biggest industry it was, in the country at the time. Oh, it was. They hired tens of thousands of people to do it. One of the things they did in the sort of weeks leading up to that before that big 36-hour period is they actually pulled out uh, they sort of loosened the rails so the rails weren't as so they could do it faster. They sort of had it like they said, we'll take out like every other nail out of the rail um, so that when they, the big day came, they could much more easily move it those three inches. Uh, but I think that sort of speaks to the desire to sort of and the economic efficiency of standardizing railroad lines. Um, you know, it's about that same time they start to introduce standard time zones that leads for all kinds of efficiencies in, in that respect. You know, Sears, when they start selling things, they start selling watches so people make sure they catch their trains. You know, and it, it's uh, why it's important to have a watch because if you're going to catch your train and train shows up at a certain time, uh, otherwise you got to, you know, that's why it's a, an important commodity. Thinking, though, about sort of how you end up with those railroad cars that in Massachusetts that are from really far away. The really, I think, interesting point in, in that development is in the 1950s when two things happen. One, I think, is something everybody knows about or to some degree, that's the interstate highway system, right. you know, which leads to all kinds of other efficiencies. And the other one, and this one is, is a, has really transform global supply chains, the development of standardized shipping containers. In 1956, by a guy named Malcolm McLean, who recognized that most of the money that people were spending on shipping was about loading and unloading stuff. You know, that shipping something from New York to London, that most of the cost was not in the boat traveling across the ocean, most of it was about loading the stuff onto the boat in New York and unloading it in London. Um, and that shipping containers could be a way of doing that where you could load a ship, you know, with a crane, and then it could be unloaded directly onto trucks or onto trains, 
And so, you know, the shipping container, thinking about how that's evolved in the 50 plus years since McLean invented this thing, you know, can be loaded in some inland city in China, taken on train, you know, to a port in China on a big ship across an ocean, unloaded in the United States, take put it on another train, put on a truck, and unloaded at your local Walmart with all of that stuff in it, never having been touched since it was in China. Two questions. Yes. What do we know about Malcolm McLean? And secondly, um, that only works. So the standardization, it's a mm. bit like you know Lego bricks, right? You have to agree they're all the same size and they're not going to work. Mm. I know they're not all the same size, but you, uh, you get the point. So, so, so that standardization is key. Uh, but it only works if you're able to track the containers because mm. otherwise you have chaos, right? So, right. so you, you, need a, you, need a, you need a concomitant... Uh, development and information technology if this is really going to work. But do we, But before we do that, yeah. what do you know about your, your man? Uh, so he uh, was a, in, the, in the shipping industry uh, and, you know, he, Where? he uh, his, his original ships were in Newark. Okay. Which, big port, and the first cargo ship goes from Newark to, to Houston. First cargo ship has 58 containers on it. You know, if you've seen pictures of these enormous cargo ships they have today, they have thousands and thousands and thousands of containers on them. So, so it, you know, what was looked like a huge ship at the time is now dwarfed by these sort of monster uh, cargo ships they had today. And, and what he was interested in is he had both a, a his family had a, a shipping industry, a trucking industry, and he bought a, a shipping on, on boats in uh, company and you try to figure out well how do I integrate these two things together right because what had been happening is a ship comes in you get a bunch of guys you unload the ship you put it in things in a warehouse you wait for the truck to show up you know another bunch of guys take it from the warehouse put it on the truck huge expense in, in, in labor and what he found by putting them in these containers is that he was able to reduce those costs by 90 percent Thinking about both the shipping containers here. Sorry, I bet that made him popular with the longshoremen. So the longshore in Newark. Yeah, no, <laughs> the longshoremen, like the head of the union in Newark, was was damning this guy to help in you know the mid 1950s because he saw what this would do, right? Because the longshoremen used to be a very you know and dock workers going back into the 19th century, draymen, people who are dealing with teamsters, teamsters, all this kind of people who are dealing with stuff. Are now being replaced by like one or two guys with cranes, or dozens dozens of guys with cranes. But they're replacing thousands, thousands tens of thousands of people who are now out, out of work. Um, you don't no longer need big warehouses because you can just put these containers on on you know on the ground. But both the 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 ideas behind the interstate highway system we talked about that in a previous episode a long time ago. And these shipping uh, efficiencies with, with containers have their origins in the Second World War. Right? These are, are one of the things about logistics generally uh, is that many of these developments actually come out of wartime innovations. You know? And so they start thinking about well, how do we get an army and all the things that an army needs across an ocean to get men and guns and artillery, the things they need to be where they need to be. Um, and so much of the development of, of logistics as a, as a profession actually comes out of, uh, of the military. Uh, the word logistics itself actually originally comes into English in 1846 from French, but they're talking about military logistics and only later gets applied to everything else. Stuff. Stuff, right. But, okay, what about this information aspect of it? Because you've got, if you're going to... Yeah, have thousands of shipping containers. You need some way to track them, and, and you have to make sure the right container containers gets the right, right, and... exactly. Well, so I think that sort of is, is sort of the next sort of stage of evolution, which you find in the nineteen, mostly in the nineteen, starting in the nineteen seventies, where you have going from paper records of what's in these containers and ship manifests and say, look here, the hundreds of items that are here, and and doing it all manually essentially to having those records being digitized um, and networked um, 
And one of the first companies to, to really do this with thinking about their inventory and thinking about how they manage these supply chains is Walmart, which adopts a computerized inventory system in 1975, which allows them to know how much stuff they've got in the store, how much stuff they've got in their warehouse, how much stuff their suppliers have, what the timelines are for those things. And you know, from that system, which they introduced in 1975, you know, that only gets better you know, uh, over the past you know, 40 years. Um, in terms of having a, a on-demand supply chain where they know exactly where everything is and they have just enough stuff in the store that people can go to the store and find the toilet paper under normal circumstances, but not so much toilet paper that the takes can't stock shampoo. Exactly. Right. So, so would you would you argue, David, that this development is what allows Walmart to become the biggest retailer in the United States? I think it's one of the things that that you know its ability to deal with logistics well. Part of that having to do with with these computerized systems. They even have their own set of, of uh, satellites that they put up to help track where all their stuff is. Um, there's some other things that Walmart's doing, um, good, bad, and otherwise, that it leads them to become the biggest uh, retailer in the United States, or at least it was. Um, in the they might EDs, be. I, I, they think still still by, I think they might they, still be. Yeah. Are they still the largest employer in the United States? That wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, hmm. I think that's that's. I'd have to check that, but that sounds if they're not, they're pretty close. Um, you know, that, I think, but they created a model for how you have very complex supply chains that, that that enabled them to be very profitable. You know, and being able to have the right you know, coming back to the definition, the right item at the right quality at the right time at the right price um, for the right person. person for the right person, right? You know, they they they've got. That system down, whether you know their business model is one you want to emulate for other reasons. Uh, so, so sorry, let me interrupt you, David. Yeah, pardon me. So, if we went back to 1975, hmm. Walmart is a fairly successful regional store at that point. Yeah, Sears is a national chain that looks unassailable. Yes, uh, we get to 2000, Sears is gone. Walmart is, if not the largest retailer in the United States, possibly the world, and if not the largest employer in the United States, it's on its way. And certainly by 2020, that's the case. Yeah. So, so what happened? Is it down to efficient supply chains then? Because on one hand, you know, we talked about Sears a moment mm. ago, and, and Sears pioneered a lot of this stuff, but selling stuff by catalog ain't going to do it anymore. I mean, so you vaguely remembered the Sears catalog. catalog, right? Yes. I have a better memory of it because I'm a bit older than you but don't remember actually like ordering mm, stuff, stuff you, yeah. you know so, so so to some extent that's archaic technology and it does make you think okay Walmart's hegemonic position right now mm. may not last either because of course we've had this other thing that came along in, in, in by the turn of the 20th century Amazon and other online retailers but particularly Amazon at the moment mm. so so yeah how do we get good, there uh, I think that's a Complicated question. It has to do with, in part, some specific choices that both these companies made in terms of management and, and where they put their stores and the rise and fall of, of malls. You know, lots of the Sears stores were in malls. They, they were anchors they in malls. malls. Right. And, um, you know, Walmart attracted people because they had lots of stuff and it was cheap. And part of it was, I think, they were able to sort of master that supply chain in a, in a in a way that that Sears which was still using a sort of mid 20th century model couldn't keep up with um, you have the ability in in the starting in the mid 1970s and later you know to, to for first for a kind of information economy that was not possible earlier we one sort of obvious example of that is, is the introduction of barcodes onto items that allows corporations to know exactly I mean, it has lots of advantages it makes it faster to buy things at the checkout but it also allows corporations to know exactly how much product they have and you know when then they need to order more stuff in order for it to get there just in time that they don't run out um, 
The barcode, uh, for those people who are interested, is first introduced in 1974. The first item scanned along a barcode uh, was a 10-pack of Wrigley's uh, Juicy Fruit Gum at Marsh's Supermarket in Troy, Ohio. Okay, so so before we run Which on is the, now in the Smithsonian. Right, okay, before we run on the air, David asked me this, because David's better on this kind of stuff than me. Uh, and I guess 1972, which wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. Uh, but uh, what's the? St do you know the background of that particular uh, event? You know, uh, yes. Yeah, so that store was actually quite close to the place where they developed the barcodes. Right. Okay. And, so. and the barcode reading machine. So they said, well, we need to try this out someplace. And they found a grocery store to do it. Right. And how long did it take for barcode scanners and barcodes to become ubiquitous? <sighs> I mean, I think it's mostly in the mid '80s. By that, you know, by the so a decade later, barcodes are and readers are are pretty ubiquitous. And of uh, course, famously in the 1992 election, yes, yes, of course, George H. W. Bush didn't because he didn't do a lot of retail shopping himself. Was sort of amazed when he encountered a barcode reader. reader. Yes, didn't he? Uh, yes, wasn't he? Um, and people mocked him for that. Right. It's like we've all been doing this for a while, George. Um, you know, but one of the the consequences of all of these kinds of efficiencies is it does it is and i think we've sort of hinted at this throughout it does truly transform for certain kinds of labor and makes our people's relationship to labor different right all the the dock workers are are, are gone uh at least not as they're only a fragment of now of what there used to be it's a very different kind of job than it used to be there aren't as many people at the grocery store or, or at the, the, the super store of various kinds who is scanning items for you anymore or checking out the items. Because we do it ourselves. Because we do it ourselves. And then the technology allows for a kind of efficiency there. Or, we can ask, or we're ordering online. Or we're ordering online and doing our own uh, you know, pricing in some ways there. And one can ask whether that's good or bad in the short or long term. And I'm not... Sure, we have good answers to Well, that. and 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 again, and, and I know you're not doing this. Mm. We shouldn't romanticize the past. I mean, let, let's remember that original supply chain we talked about. Okay, it relied on enslaved labor, <laughs> so yes, it yeah. was not a great. It was not a great thing. Um, and even so, manga, to a large extent, global manufacturing has been offset. Has mm -hmm. been has been uh, has moved to East Asia, and that's been made possible. East and Southeast Asia, that's been made possible by um, the kind of developments you, you, you've yeah. described so well uh, and that has meant that manufacturing jobs have disappeared apart from in very particular um, industries and, and uh, uh, sectors of the economy uh, has largely been off has been just moved to a particular part of the, of the, of the globe with a knock-on effect in parts of the world there where manufacturing jobs used to exist but in the same way uh, that we've seen, at least in looking in our gallop over the past two centuries, it's kind of inevitable. So, so whether it, whether it's a longshoreman in Newark mm. um, who would have had a pretty well-paid job in 1948, but that job doesn't exist in the same way by 1978, I don't know what we can do about this yeah. necessarily, apart from observe it. Do you see what I mean? Or or so yes. So being a supermarket checkout person isn't the same job. But I don't. You know, the question is, what what replaces it? We 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 were promised at one point that, that labor saving devices and and savings in labor would give us all more leisure time, but that doesn't seem to be the case. case no, because they created social media to, to <laughs> exactly. soak up all of our time. There's got to be something, some way to, to sell us. So so, so so I mean, and we're we're out of our depth here, David. I suppose because this is this is the great modern dilemma of mm. where all this is leading. Well, I think one of the things that the past couple of years have, have demonstrated is is how even if these systems are amazingly robust and complex and, and powerful, they can also simultaneously be fragile with, with consequences that ripple throughout the economy. Yeah, let's think, not forget the ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal, Canal right? <laughs> And the Suez Canal is, is a you know I think if you can look at these maps online of, of these huge cargo ships carrying tens of thousands of these these containers, you know you create one bottleneck and all of a sudden 
you know, huge ripples. You know, we don't have bananas at the grocery store for the next month. Um, you know, right now with the... There's no spare capacity in the system, or very little. Well, there's been, there's been I think, lots of, you know, the number of companies that run these sort of global shipping operations has, there's been a, a, a centralization and, and, and uh, you know, the, the smaller companies been bought out by the bigger companies. And, um, you know, we, the expectation that you can get all the things that you need to go into complex productions um makes it very tricky. I mean, for, there's an example from Boeing from a few years ago where they're building the Dreamliner, right? These enormous airplanes that have tons and tons of complicated parts and specialized, you know, equipment in it and, you know, specialized people working on it and products went from all over the place. At one point, Boeing ran out of screws. And they had to stop production on the Dreamliner, employing tens of thousands of people for weeks until they could find enough screws. And they were sending people out to like Walmart to go and buy these screws because their supply chain had broken down. Right? There's another example. And in the old days, there would have been a screw ma manufacturer probably somewhere in the Northwest West. that they could have actually just gone to to buy screws. But now all the screws are probably made in... Well, I mean, Some place or, field. well, there's that, but there's also, you know, one of the things that used to happen all the time is that, that, you know, because of these supply chain disruptions, which were very common in the 19th century, if the factory doesn't have enough raw materials, they just shut the factory down for a week or a month and lay all the people off, right? That was very common in the 19th century. If you're working in a shoe factory, they run out of leather, they say, right. See you next month. Maybe, you know, if we get enough, in which case... Uh, you know, uh, but I think the complexity of the systems now are, are, you know, an order of magnitude more complicated than they were in the 19th century. There's another example after the uh, nuclear meltdown in Japan. One of the factories that shut down as a consequence of that was the only place in the world that made a special kind of paint additive that was used uh, to paint cars, that made the paint on cars shiny. And like car manufacturers around the world had to shop, stop production because they didn't have enough paint additive uh, because that one factory had shut down. Um, and I think so. I think we're living in a world which is simultaneously has these amazing systems, but they're also very, very fragile. And I think we need to, we've become aware of that fragility in the past two years in a way that we haven't been. You know, people are worried about whether. Uh, there will be Christmas in the United States in the ways that Americans expect Christmas, which means rampant consumerism and being able to buy things on December 23rd to get your loved one because you forgot to buy anything before that. Um, you know, that kind of model of consumption is, is maybe not as stable as we thought it was. Well, our, our uh, friend and colleague, well, certainly I know him a little bit, Woody Holton, mm. has just published a book that's receiving a lot of attention called, uh, what's it called? Liberty is sweet. Sweet liberty. What's it called? Liberty is sweet. Liberty is sweet. Sorry. And it's a it's a big uh, grand statement about the American Revolution. I'm very interested in reading this. It was published this week, and congratulations to Woody for that. But I went to order it, and I checked its availability at a certain online retailer that everybody uses, uh, <laughs> and it was a two month wait. And I was sort of stunned at this, thinking, and of course they would allow me to buy the electronic version immediately uh, for my device, which they will. They have sold me uh, <laughs> to read it on. And I thought, well, I, I want the book. Um, now, because of the weight, I thought, well, actually, I'm going to go to my independent bookstore anyway and order it because I prefer to do that to support them. Uh, now, it's unclear to me when they're going to get it. But when I arrived in the UK in 1992, if you wanted to get a new, a newly published book, um, especially in American history, published in the U.S., you had to wait. That was just the way, yeah, again, you ordered it at a bookshop or you ordered it online. Not online, you, you wrote away for it. Yes. Um, Dear publisher. Yes, exactly. Please send Dear me. sir. It's like Thomas Jefferson <laughs> yeah. saying, I need um, books from... And, and you got it when you got it. Yet, I'm so conditioned to being able to sort of get it when I mm. want it. Now, I'll just have to wait. And that's the way... And, and I assume... You know, Woody's book has been published. They publish thousands and thousands of copies of it. They're Simon and Schuster are looking to move them, but 
because of the global shipping disruption. So this is just, and paper shortage. And, and this is but one illustration, and people mm. will have their own undoubtedly. And but but the kind of my my reaction to what do you mean I have to wait? Yeah, it was was quite. Yeah, we have a very different quite, relationship yeah. to to commerce and, and and how these you know we have we have expectations of how well these supply chains are supposed to work. That's it. That's that it. that you know are born out of. The systems working really well for most of our lives, um, right. and I, you know, I was born into an analog world where you had to wait for stuff. Uh, yeah, and now we don't. And as I said, uh, it's caused me to think, wow, I've really been conditioned to just being able to get what I want when I want it. Can I tell you my my favorite story about a supply chain falling apart? Please. Nineteen seventy three. Lots of problems in nineteen seventy three. Thinking about what's going on with the oil crisis and other things and politics. Johnny Carson told a joke on the Tonight Show about there being a shortage of toilet paper. Telling a joke. As a consequence of that, everyone went out the next day and bought all the toilet paper. And then there was a, a massive toilet paper shortage caused by the supply chain. You know, the supply chain wasn't anticipating Johnny Carson causing a run on toilet paper. And he had to go on television and apologize to people for, for telling them a joke about the uh, toilet paper shortage when there wasn't one. What's interesting, David, is the number of times that toilet paper seems to cause the problem. <laughs> well, it's not something you want to run it's out of. Precisely. And, and, and it is something you can stockpile. Pile, right? It will, you know, it will keep. Whether, whether it's 1973 or in 2000 when everyone was worried that all the supply chains would fall apart because with, with the Y2K bug, people were stockpiling stuff then and causing shortages uh, when they didn't need to. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we will see how all of this unfolds. But I think it sort of speaks to the complexity of the, the modern economy. Well, and there's worry here, that is in the UK, both mm-hmm. about Christmas and Christmas, Christmas presents being delivered uh, are arriving, but also um, a shortage of turkeys. They're very worried about the shortage of turkeys because of a shortage of agricultural workers and disruption of supply chains as yeah. well. So. Um, there we yeah, well, Santa's got a good supply chain, so I think he'll figure it out. Well, that's because uses all that unfree labor. <laughs> all all those, all those, those elves. So. Right. <laughs> on, on that note, <laughs> uh, time for last drops, Frank. Uh, yeah, I want to recommend an article that I just saw in the that I that I read in the uh, current issue, the October issue of the Atlantic, um, called "America's Atlantis." It's by Ross Anderson. Um, and the subtitle is Did People First Come to This Continent, that is North America, by land or by sea? And it's actually a very nice summary of the ongoing debate and frankly unsettled debate between um, archaeologists and historians uh, and and uh, scientists about how humanity came to North and South America. And Native peoples. Well, that's yeah. by humanity. Well, that's no, but I mean, I mean Native peoples, I think, also oh, yeah, their involved own in ideas. The yes, in yes. fact, they're, they're involved in this debate and... and um, about um, how humanity came to the Americas. And uh, it's, it's as yet undecided. Uh, there are proponents for the so-called land route as well as the sea route. This examines the uh, new and fairly compelling evidence for a sea route, but it allows for the fact that this could all be disproved. So very, very interesting essay. What's yours, David? Cool. Uh, so I've got a, a, a slightly related story, I guess, in, in as much as it's about the pre- pre-Columbian America and when people show up. Um, a story about uh, when the Vikings visited Newfoundland, as, as maybe one other was a, a, a Norse um, settlements in, in Greenland and in Iceland and, and, and in um, what is now Newfoundland. And uh, we've known about, you know, we've had archaeological evidence of this for a while, uh, but they've done some new uh, kinds of, of dendrochronology dating based on, on tree rings and they were able to date uh, some of the wood at one of these settlements to 1021 uh, AD, which means you know they're exactly a thousand years old. Which is wow! Cool. Um, or at least that tree ring was. It, Where was it reported? Uh, well, I saw this. It was it was in the Guardian, but it's, I've seen versions of the story in a number of places coming out just today. So I think they're sort of trying to you know. Uh, you know the location of this these sites and, and uh, have been known for 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 many years. But I think we're learning more about the specifics of the timing of it uh, as a consequence of this uh, sort of new dendrochronology study. So excellent. Yes, learning more and more about. 
free Colombian America. All right. Cheers. Cheers. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes. 